Hi, I'm Kelly Porton. I'm here today with Wandika Gale, and we are talking about her story, Prodigal, which was first published in Quelly Journal, uh, November 30th, 2019, and is a part of your short story collection as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the short story collection and how the story fits into that? Great. Thank you for having me. Um, in Motherland and other stories, it came about together as a collection because I was working on my dissertation and I realized I was writing a lot of stories that looked at the theme of belonging and identity and primarily, you know, being different in a new setting. So for most of the stories, it's about immigrants, whether they're going abroad and they're having to face you know, a different world, a white world, or just homesickness. Or it's about people who have to fit into home in their country. And so for Prodigal, um, I wanted to talk about, well, what happens when somebody comes back and it's not a great situation and how do they feel a sense of belonging? What was it like for them to leave? What was it like for them to come back? So I think that most of these stories, they talk about that idea of, of difference and, and trying to find your way in a new space, whether it is um, reclaiming it or ver you know, forging it in a, in a new place. So I do think that, that prodigal fits in that way um, as well. I, I don't know if you want to know like, how it came about in the sense of the fact that this is, I feel like, one of the longest projects because I started to think about it when I was 18. I really knew anything, you know, about writing. And I wrote it as what I like to call now a practice novel because, because you know, the longer you do this, the more you realize when something is not great. And so it became a short story after because I revisited it and said, well, I don't know if this is ever going to go anywhere. And I'm thinking, well, what was the story? Can I just write a story based on it without going back and trying to edit it? And so that's how that came into this collection. So very, very interesting that I wrote this long piece between like 18 and 20. And then it became this short story that I'm so much um, prouder off than what it was. So when you first thought about the story, were you thinking about examining uh, leaving or the grief or all of those things mixed together, just or just examining a person who leaves one space and how can they get back? I'm just curious what the impetus was. Exactly. It started with Della's story. So for a long time, I was because I identified with Della, I was a young woman, I was writing about a young girl in a very strange family dynamic. And the, the, I think the reason it didn't really get off the ground for a long time was that I was still trying to figure out what the story was and I didn't know it then. And then when I revisited it, I said, you know, this isn't Della's story. This is about Angela who, you know, left because maybe selfish reasons, maybe she's trying to escape a, a negative situation, failing marriage and, and kind of being selfish in a way, you know, to leave her family. And I said, well, how, how do I think about that? And also think about, well, I think that came later, the idea of 
coming back to a space, leaving and coming back to a space. It, it took a while for me to figure out that's what I was trying to say with it. You know, that the idea of leaving home, coming back and are you changed by it? And the more I started to do research on the other side of things, because you know you have to write a critical introduction, you, you have to think about it that way when you're trying to fit it into an academic framework. And I was saying, well, you are changed. The minute you leave and um, you try to come back, you're not the same person. So that interrogation of it came later. Um, but definitely it did start, it did start with Della, you know, a young woman having to witness this in her family and trying to find herself. And then I realized the more compelling story was about the person who left, you know, and tried to come back. Well, and also I think like when you write stories, or at least this is true for me, when I write a story, I'm trying to figure out a relationship or some sort of aspect of a relationship and a dynamic, I guess. And then when you, and then I don't know what teacher said to me, it's always an interesting exercise in empathy to switch perspectives and write it from the other person. So I'm curious, um, did you start out with not much empathy for Angela or an, a character like Angela and then come to more empathy? In the beginning, I was definitely more invested in how does the young girl deal with her mother's absence and then have to deal with her, you know, sudden return. And so I wasn't thinking about, well, let me put myself in Angela's shoes for a long time. So definitely I wasn't as empathetic toward Angela as I was for Della because I was thinking about the left behind kind of thing, as opposed to what motivates somebody to have to leave and then realize, oh, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I made some mistakes or, you know, maybe it was the best, you know. So definitely um, I had to, it, it came to me later, as I said, I had to think about that. And also because I realized, well, what's the story really concerned with? And the story was concerned with the family dynamics. So that's when you talk about, you know, perspectives, I said, when I started to write this, even the new version with Angela as the focus, it was like um, third person limited following her. And I was in her mind and I was thinking, oh, what does this feel for her? But then I'm like, well, I, I think the story is more about the dynamic of it and how it, imp how it impacts all of these people. So I need to be in their mind. And so it came to me after that. Well, who says that we can't kind of... Um, switch perspectives and I thought do I alternate it do I write it as one thing and then just have when I'm focusing on one person I jump into their mind focus on another person and then I realized that it was better to just give them their own sections and have them interact with each other but then from the vantage point of whoever it is that we're working and because I still got to talk about Della's feelings I still got to talk about well you know, her growing up without her mother and then having this sort of surrogate mother with her, her grandmother. And then I also had, I got a chance to think about Timothy, which sort of represents that childhood. There's usually a child that's like, you know, well, mom isn't so bad and then maybe we can forgive her and is more willing to, to look beyond because they need different things and they're willing to overlook certain things. So, and then of course the husband and, and I didn't, I don't think I knew these people. I wrote a whole novel about it. 
And I don't think I knew them until I wrote the short story um, to say, okay, I know why. I know why they would feel this way and I, they're not perfect. And I tried very hard not to make them these victims. You know, they, they do things too that it's not good and um, suspect or not suspect, that's the wrong word. Um, just it's motivated by something. So we can try to understand what that is, whether it is like quote unquote good or bad decisions. So when you wrote the whole, you wrote the whole novel in limited third person? Yeah. From Della's perspective, and then the short story I wrote in Angela's perspective all the way through. And then wow. I said, it wasn't finished. I mean, me at some point before I finish it, I'm like, this, this doesn't work, you know, so I have to figure it out. Yeah. At some point, did you have, um, so you've got um, Angela's perspective, Kwame's perspective, and Timothy's perspective. And then um, we don't really, we don't get these perspective because right. she's already gone. Did you at some point write these no. perspective and then decide? No. no. I, I, felt, I felt like the, because she, and I, I did kind of think about it cinematically. I don't usually do that. But I thought about it sort of like a reel to say, you know, like when you find out in a story where somebody has, either been killed off or has died at the beginning and you're like oh I kind of like this person I'm never going to see them again but you see them in flashback and so her perspective is given through flashback through other people's perspectives but of course we don't know what she's thinking but I don't know that I needed to because she's very straightforward she tells you what she thinks even though like when she she tell, she's talking to her daughter her daughter is sensing you know, um, disapproval, but she doesn't actually think it. And I don't think we needed her to think it. So I never, I never considered it to be honest because <laughs> I figured, well, she's gone. That's the point at which we enter with her coming back to her mother's burial. And so we'd only have to access through memory anyway. It seems to me having four kids, that all teenagers are like angry for a while and then it subsides, but this is, you know, heightened. And I did wonder, how do you get over that? I mean, seven years and then it's been three years since she last spoke with her mother. Yeah. And that was like, I, I definitely could wrap my mind around. She needed to get out. That was not a good marriage. Um, she was yelling all the time, you know, it wasn't good. And she wasn't happy with him at all. But then I, and I sort of get it too, the, the longer you're away, you know, you just, it's a week and then it's two weeks and then the kids don't right. want to talk to you. So they hang up the phone, then you stop calling. But like to not have talked for three years, right. a long time. It's hard to wrap your mind around a mom, a mother being okay with that, you know? Uh, that's that's why, um, as you say, I wasn't, empathetic toward her in the beginning because I was just so hung up on you know what if there was a woman like this because they do exist you know um I don't remember who wrote it but the story Bella makes life where a woman goes away and she she did I don't think she had children but she didn't really interact with many people back home and so I like that same thing of 
what makes a person do that? Maybe, and that's why I kind of say in it too, that she just didn't see a clear path back and she's not perfect. And she's like, she's not um, the best mother out there. And so she kind of beats herself about, up about that. But then at the same time, she's hopeful that she can build something with the daughter. But you I mean, we meet them on the return, the day of the return. So there's a long way to go for Della to come around. And yeah, I mean, yeah, she's a teenager too. So definitely that very kind of bravado of, I don't really care that you're here, but she's obviously annoyed and upset. And she talks to her in this kind of, and, and I have a teen, I have teenage nieces and sometimes they can be pretty deadpan. They're really great girls. I should say that, but sometimes they're just, you know, teenage and, and, deadpan yeah. about things and so I I think that knowing that helped to to think about well what was I like I don't know if I was like angsty but definitely you don't want to show your cards you know, your emotional cards uh, um, all the time and especially somebody that you resent you know so so yeah for her and I, I love well I loved how complicated you made it because like he was not motivated before. And uh, I mean, he, you know, he was, but it seems like with Rachel, he's coming into his own a little bit more. And so it's hard to tell whether it was Angela not having faith in him that, you know, made him less ambitious or less, I mean, who's, who knows? I love the fact that it was complicated. Yeah. <laughs> like I mean, nobody's the villain. I, I try to do that because I, even though it's artifice, you want people to say, you don't want them to kind of squint at it like, this could never happen, you know? So I, I people are messy and complex and and I felt like with, with Kwame, if somebody's constantly inferring that you're not good enough, why did I marry somebody like this backwater kind of guy? You're not going, it's not, going to motivate you i watched like an experiment where they told i think it was like um something on netflix like a hundred people and they kept telling just randomly whether they were good or not that you are not good enough and the person there was one that was really good it was something about they were twirling plates on a stick or something and she kind of was a natural but they kept saying negative things to her and then when she did it again it kept falling kept falling and so those people who weren't so good and they kept getting motivation, they improved. So I thought, okay, I know it's kind of hokey, but this experiment reveals something about human nature that if you keep telling somebody you're not good enough, that why don't you wear a shirt and tie? Or why don't you do something else? Like you're just a carpenter, then they're not going to be as motivated. So I think that Rachel being a, being a lot more sympathetic, whether she just was in love with him or she truly believed in him or both it was more her approach to him that i i suppose now looking back at you write these things and then you, you say oh i meant to do that all along but then i'm thinking <laughs> yeah no i'm thinking that yeah she I, I did make her a lot more sympathetic because he needed that and it helped him to 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 grow in some ways so there i guess there is something to that in human nature I wanted to ask a little bit about the tortoise story. Um, can you describe that story a little bit and why you added that into, into the bigger story? 
Um, like halfway through my collection, because I started to conceive of it as a whole too, and I'm saying, I'm noticing that I'm drawing a lot on folk tales because you have uh, lots of these West African West and West Indian folk tales that are just a part of culture and they offer us commentary without like it being on the surface all the time. I mean, for this story though, I made the folk tale do the job of folk tales where you have an older person saying, I'm gonna tell you the story about your behavior. I'm gonna show you through a story why you need to listen to your parents. So that aspect of it is pretty on the surface that, you know, the tortoise, um, the, the, the boy doesn't listen, goes into the forest and the tortoise um, invites him in and then captures him. And then, you know, because of the mysticism and spiritism that is always attached to folk tales, is he's alive, even though he's kept in this drum for three days and then his parents hear him crying and come and rescue him. And, and so I felt like she would remember this story as she's reminiscing about what her being back here, her mother has passed and so on and not having listened to her counsel because her mother was like, you really need to go, you know? And so the young Angela takes it as a joke, but the, the, the older Angela reflecting realizes the significance. So I, I hope that, you know, it, it was a way for me to include a cultural reference to say, we use the oral tradition often to, to say, here is a, I don't know if I should say moral lesson, but moralize to say, here's a conduct that you should be, you should be a certain way. And even though like the tortoise isn't usually a figure that's a trickster all the time, but there are some folk tales where the tortoise is a trickster and you have to say, watch out for the tortoise. But sometimes the tortoise is the person who does a bad thing and has to learn from it. So as in one of the other stories in Finding Joy, there is a tortoise story there too, where it kind of goes to Obi-Man and, um, He's supposed to get some kind i don't want to give away too much people want to read it but he's supposed to get um some remedy for his wife and you know he does something that he shouldn't do so with this story um as i said on the surface it's just like you have to listen to counsel but the deeper one being that oftentimes certain um situations appear to be ideal and they're not so we can kind of equate, say, Angela thinking, oh, I'll go away, I'll be with um, this new guy and, you know, forget about my family and didn't turn out the way she thought. And I'm sure other people can draw their own meanings from it. That's the beauty of having a folktale. It could mean so many different things in, in there. But that's kind of my mindset when I was, was including it. That's what I was thinking too. I love the fact that you can interpret it, you know, in different ways and um, gather meaning from it. But I actually thought of it the same way that that you meant it. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, very cool. Um, I was wondering about her career and what you imagined because I, you said you wrote it as a longer piece. I'm just wondering if you had in the longer piece imagined her life in Atlanta and what had happened with Paul or any of that. I know it doesn't really figure into the story or matter, but she made the, I don't know if she was thinking of it as an excuse to get away, but she said, I'll have more stability if I go to the yeah. States. Did she really believe that? And did, do you imagine that that was true, that she sent maybe money back or? 
I didn't mention that, but that is something that they would have expected, especially that, you know, her being married um, at, for a certain time, still not being there and being away, she would have, because like in, in Jamaica, a lot of people um, rely on remittances from their relatives. So that would have been sort of, I didn't kind of say that, but I hope that was kind of inferred that that's what it meant that even if she wasn't with the father that she would be able to make more money more opportunities um i also wanted to touch on the fact that for many people america is this promised land because it's and that's this is my whole dissertation now <laughs> the idea that the dream of america is conjured by people who are too ashamed to tell their relatives, actually, I have to work three jobs, I have to walk through snow, it's not so great, people are prejudiced, it's awful. And they say, oh, no, man, I'll send down the barrel of, of goods, man, everything good, everything great. And <laughs> the other thing is that now, now people are more hip to it because we have the internet and things are instant and, you know, people are a lot more truthful and, you know, they realize I'm just, I have to tell people that I'm not made of money and, you know, so, but that idea persists that your life will be better once you migrate to America or England or foreign, as we say. So, so that, that was part of it, was that the, it's an accepted wisdom that you will leave to America and your life will be better. So her accepting that isn't strange. Her belief in that isn't strange. The reality, you know, may not have been that different. I mean, she was, in my mind, even though it's not on the page, in my mind, she was successful for a while, but it wasn't like mega millions. I don't know if she meant to go there to make mega millions and stuff, but she she was okay. She just was not a good mom about things, you know? And then she, yeah, and then the relationship didn't work out, which was yeah. sad too, because she left for a local entertainer. And when you wrote that, I was like, oh, that probably won't go. <laughs> I don't know why I thought just I just picture entertainers, you know, going from one place to the next. It doesn't seem very stable. Exactly. And yeah, even though she is like a promoter, PR person in that machine, she probably felt like he fit. He is the guy she deserved. You know, he can schmooze. He is liked he's talented he can move in these circles but then what if he gets successful and dumps you and for another company or another representative or um just not as your boyfriend anymore what and then it also is complicated to think about people who work with their significant other and then the blurred lines of i'm telling you this because i'm a professional and then they're resisting because it seems like advice from a um partner you know which you can reject and be like yeah you know um i don't want to do that so whatever it is that happened maybe he was just um an um can i say asshole <laughs> well and it's interesting too because she she hasn't talked to them in three years and they broke up three years ago so that's i mean i don't know if you meant that and i just thought of that myself but i was like well maybe she just couldn't deal with talking to them anymore and then you, she would have to say oh no he's not around yeah you know it's funny that you said that she didn't talk with, i didn't even remember that i had written that detail i just knew that she didn't talk to, to him she didn't talk to them for a while she would say birthdays you know holidays but then it would drop off you know so yeah i did forget that fact 
<laughs> I don't know. I see like yeah. that's so fun. I think as a reader, you just write some more into the story. Um, okay, I wanted to ask about um, so for a long you say for a long time that V would still dance the Dinky Mean Dinky Mini. Yeah. What is that? Dinky Mini is like a festival um, dance that you, it's, it's based on um, mental music. I don't know. I don't know enough about it that I should be able to kind of give you a history lesson about it. But I do know that mental music is like music that has like this the bass and the um, string instrument. And it, I don't know how to. You just have to kind of look up how how it sounds. So that kind of um, slow beat and the the clothes that you would wear where you would kind of lift up your skirts and I, I don't know how else to describe it. I pictured it being something like, so she'd have to be really young at heart to kind of yes. still want to do it. But, okay. but lots of people who are, regardless of age, you think about all the festival events and the dancing, you know, I also think about other religions in Jamaica, like Kumina, which has like African um, and um, origin, that uh, Pokomania, where there's always dance involved. So you think about a lot of our religions, whether it's Pentecostal or whether it's like any of those kind of um, African um versions of these things and it involves dance so all from the young to the old so so definitely she wasn't somebody who was this typically kind of um crotchety miserable old person she was somebody who would tell you like it is but she also would quick to laugh so i hope that that would give you oh, that image totally came oh. through yeah um, okay, and what is the nine night? Nine, I nine, nine night is the um, nine nights after the person's death that they, it's, a, it's sort of like a wake. I think you would understand as a wake where people come over and they send off the person's spirit through these things. So some people pour um, white rum on the ground or they would sing or they do certain things like they ensure that they put um, towels over the mirrors. I didn't go in depth in it because I didn't think it was that, you know, deep for this family, but some people they wouldn't, there are certain things you can't do, like you, you don't, um, you don't say certain things about the, the dead person and you speak about them in good terms and you you make sure that everybody is jovial and has food and you know so that kind of spirit of revelry and wishing the person so that you don't want them to linger you don't want them to stay in the spirit world and haunt you or just be trapped you know so you you, you give them a send-off so that's really what a nine night is and um, but i've been exploring it in um, other works too, that idea of well, why do they do these things? Like, um, like the like you wash the body with uh, the water that you wash the body has to be discarded a certain way, you know, <laughs> because just wow, like how how do you have to discard? Like it? You you can't you can't just 
make sure you can't touch it or you can't let somebody else touch it or so what you wash the body and you kind of have to throw it away outside of the the house i've been reading some things about the things i had not known about about some of these beliefs not everybody i should say holds these beliefs and not everybody does things to this kind of extreme i shouldn't even say extreme but because that's suggests no, i know it's negative but to this extent you know i know what you're talking about because like my mom had a statue of the virgin mary <laughs> she's very religious and like when it it was wood and when it started to decay in the catholic church See, I didn't even know this, but you're supposed to burn. Like if you've had it blessed, yeah, you can't just throw out the statue. It's just fascinating to me how any belief comes up and ritual around beliefs. So I think that's really cool um, to learn about Nine Night and yeah, it, it's uh, it, there's so many different ones, and yet there's like a lot of crossover. True, and I, I, I just love the idea of like imprinting the culture and the work because it is part of who I am and where I'm from. And even though sometimes I worry and I've had workshops where people disparage use of dialect, for instance, they say, well, we don't understand. And then I have to make sure that it is um, not watered down, but that people can understand it. But at the same time, I became sort of worried and best advice I ever got from someone is that they say the, the, the universal is in the particular. So if you are trying to appeal to everybody out there, then this mid, somebody from the Midwest may not know about that you say that you, I don't know if you're from the Midwest, but you say that you have that culture of like with um, the Virgin Mary statue that your mother believes and so on. You can identify in somebody else um, doing something that's super religious, which is different, but it's that the particular highlights the universal that we're all pretty much, you know. So that took that's me a right. long time to learn that I can't be worried about what a group of people in a workshop say outside of night. You have to take the constructive part of what people are saying, but you can't just change your whole way of writing if it's to, um, connecting to culture because you're afraid people won't understand it. No, people can just Google. Google right, stuff. exactly. It's so easy. <laughs> you don't even. That's you don't need to find out. Even you just Google it. And the only reason that I didn't Google, and I'm just asking you, is because, yeah, like it's for the interview. But it would have been. Right. It would have if I didn't have a chance to speak to you. It would have taken me two seconds to. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. and it's something I like to talk about because it is such an interesting and so many different versions of how somebody conducts a nine night. So I'm glad that you did ask me about that. Yeah. Um, okay, so you said that this is this the this is the oldest story in the collection, the first uh -huh. one or one of, one of the first I would ones. say yeah because I started the concept when I was 18. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started that from as 18 and I, I called it all kinds of things. Like I said, I called it Della, then I called it the other side of life. Then I called it the silver lining, a Jamaican tale about second chances. And then somebody was like, you're kind of giving away the story, the title. <laughs> so so <laughs> it, it, yeah, it stayed with me for a long time, but then it had a gestation period for years because, you know, and I had to also learn too that you write things for different reasons. So it was a lot of practice for me 
and because looking back on it, I was like, "Ooh, this is this is this isn't good at all." <laughs> you know? And then I actually wrote a, a novel, much shorter span in um, the master's program that also got shelved because when I tried to use it for my dissertation, like my writing mentor and like decision chair was like, "Yeah, I think you should." the work because I think you've evolved so much since you wrote this so yeah you know that's one of the things that I think people you know like when you want to be a writer you don't realize that there's such a long time between wanting to do it and being able to do it and a lot of people I think just give up in that period they think I can't do it I'm never going to be able to do it but I look back on stuff I wrote in the beginning and it was not good at all. But it was so much As, um, practice for you. I'm sure that, you know, you, you, you didn't waste your time. Do you feel you wasted your time? So you, not at all. Yeah. Even if it ended up in a drawer. So what are you up to now? What are you working on now? And are you in the middle of your dissertation now? No, I, I finished um, in 2018 and um, I was teaching fiction at Southern Utah University, but now I'm teaching creative writing at Spelman College. Like two different, you know, experiences. Like think about all the way in Utah. Now I'm in Georgia um, teaching at an HBCU. Um, both experiences, I would say, pretty. Is that, is that undergrad at Spelman or undergrad? undergrad. Yeah. Okay. Undergrad. So right now I am working on a novel. The novel that I went, I thought that I would have written as my creative dissertation, um, but then the short stories kept interrupting that process. And as I, I was procrastinating and then I ended up saying, maybe that's what I'm doing. I'll just do a collection of short stories. But I was working on a novel called My Name is Sweet Thing, which is um, inspired by the Nina Simone song, Four Women. And there are four voices, Aunt Sarah, Sophronia, Sweet Thing, and Peaches. And when I was actually studying for one of my comprehensive exams and I came across this poem, it was in poem form because it was in a, an anthology of African-American literature. And then I realized, oh, it's a blues song by Nina Simone. And I watched her uh, perform it at, a 1969, at the 1969 Harlem Festival. And I was like, okay. This is sort of like a blueprint. It's something about this was it just struck me that she started telling these stories, very cryptic, very short, you know, descriptors about them. But I said, it's sort of a blueprint for a story. I could write this. And then I discovered later that, you know, people have written works about these four women in different ways. Um, and then I realized that I was leaning more to writing about the third voice, Sweet Thing. And so I spent time on that and I said you know instead of having all four women have a dialogue with each other in their lives I'm going to focus on sweet thing and give her a backstory because the lyrics are like you know who's the little girl am I someone with money to buy and so you know like, yeah, you can look at somebody like that and they're like yeah you know what what would lead somebody to do that so of course I gave her a backstory I made her Jamaican I don't know how um the um Americans would feel about that but you know, she's a black woman and a lot of us have the same kind of, um, you know, ancestry and experience and the way that we are viewed in society. So I thought it was a safe thing to do to make her Jamaican because she's going to 
we're going to, in the first part of it, which I have completed this summer, the first part um, where she's in Jamaica and we get the backstory. And then the second part takes place in Louisiana when she goes to find someone. And, you know, it, it, it's taken me a while because it's so hard to work when you have to teach. And so my, I live for the summers. And so I can say solidly for the past three years, even though I really conceived of it in 2015 and was working on it on and off. The past three summers have been like really getting down to work and I hope to finish it this summer. I'm like, you know, <laughs> working on it um, every day. The minute school ended in May, I said, I'm gonna just buckle down. Last year, we couldn't go anywhere. I, I had to, there were two um, writers with three stars going to say, I'm going to work, work, work. But then during COVID, I don't know about you, but I, people think you're going to be this prolific, <laughs> but you're just like, you're at home all the time and you're kind of down because of the world and the uncertainty of it was getting to me. And I live alone and I am very introverted and happy to be alone, even though I'm from a big family, but I, it started to kind of press on me to say, all right, solitude has its limits <laughs> and I wasn't definitely <laughs> yeah I, I, I felt the same way I just uh I'm an introvert too but it was a little bit too much and it was hard to concentrate on a longer piece of work I don't know why it shouldn't have been I mean and some people could do it but I couldn't do it either I was having a hard time concentrating um I did a lot of crafts <laughs> I did too. I started like drawing and doing really things I've never done. And I was not good at it either. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it offered some kind of comfort, I think, you know, because I, I do watercolors. I didn't do any of that though, which is weird, but I did a lot of like bookmaking and like um, crochet stuff and yarn stuff and fixing things in the house. But no, not enough writing. So this summer I said, even though I'm not going to any major retreats, I think I'm just gonna buckle down and finish and finish this novel. And hope to go to New Orleans. I've done a couple of trips to New Orleans because that's where the second part takes place. Oh, nice. Yeah, and so I didn't want to be that person who would just say never, I did go to school in Louisiana. I went to school in Lafayette, but I never really lived in New Orleans. I would, in fact, I didn't go to New Orleans until toward the end, like after six years of living in Louisiana, that's when I, when I was going to eventually leave to go to, to Utah. I went to three trips in quick succession to New Orleans for different things. And, and then I was like, it really impressed me. Like, I don't know why I conceived of New Orleans. I didn't want to be like the generic, um, it's this like cosmopolitan, like, you know, melting pot. And, but yeah, that was part of it. And well, yeah, there's something, it's a fat, I love New Orleans. Yeah, it, it's, it's a great, just like so many layers to it that I not living there really wouldn't know. So I have to spend some time and, yeah, I mean, I wish somebody would be like, here's a bunch of money, spend two months. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Spend two months in New Orleans. Have yeah. fun. <laughs> It'd be hard to get some writing done then too, maybe. Oh well, yeah, I mean. It's pretty fun there. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, you know. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, uh, but uh, tell 
if you just tell us quickly, like um, where everybody should purchase the book and the name of the book again. And okay. it's it's um, Motherland and Other Stories, and it was published by People Tree Press, and in 2020. And it's available from their website in the UK, and it's also available in Amazon, I Barnes and Noble. Um, Bookshop. Yeah. So those Book places you can get it, but definitely you can reach out to People Tree, get it directly from them. But just be mindful that if you're not in the UK, it might take a little time to get to you. Uh, okay. Great. Well, thank you so much, and I'll have all that information on the website too. But I just thought we would say it as well. Thank you so much for, <laughs> you so for much. having me. This was so much fun talking about book, and you gave me a lot of interesting things to think about. You know, thinking about it from the reader's perspective. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, it was really fun for me. Thank you so much. And um, I hope to talk to you again soon, Wandika. Thank you.